from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. I don't make a good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got good for each other. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. Wednesday, June 10th, jam-packed day ahead. A couple of Seahawks topics. We have to dig into Joe Fan of NBC Sports joining the station yesterday to discuss his article on why he believes the Seahawks should try to sign Colin Kaepernick right now. We also had some discussion on Chris Carson yesterday. Should the Seahawks extend him? Uh, after his deal is up, everything going on with Dalvin Cook and what we've seen uh, for the running back position and some of those contracts that haven't worked out in the past, including uh, David Johnson. Although, I mean, if it nets you DeAndre Hopkins at this point, maybe it did work out. But uh, those on the docket, as well as uh, MLBPA also sending their latest proposal in response to MLB for a season of 89 games. And what are the likely odds that we could have a end up having a 48-game season because these two parties uh, can't come to a different agreement? We'll hear from Jeff Passan in this hour as well. Plus, it is MLB Draft Day, so some possibilities for the Mariners all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Joe Fan of NBC Sports joining uh, Tom, Jake, and Stacy yesterday, I believe, to talk about his article on uh, on his website about it, this could be the perfect time for the Seahawks to sign Colin Kaepernick, making his case for that. I think in general the Seahawks have a culture to where they can handle and have handled, you know, if you want to call it a distraction or someone in general who is there who is going to command you know, more media attention than than strictly what they were. Uh, are able to do on the football field. And I think we all know that Colin Kaepernick would, would bring such attention. Uh, but I think on top of that, I think that given the events of the last week where uh, Roger Goodell basically posts a video admitting guilt and that not listening to the players sooner, which, you know, I think to me is fair to assume that um, admitting wrongdoing and, and basically Colin Kaepernick being blacklisted for the, from the NFL for three years. Joe Fan also talked about the Flying Coach podcast in a quote from Pete Carroll where he said, uh, we all owe Kaepernick for what he did. And then you look at what Pete Carroll said on the Flying Coach podcast about how you know we all owe Colin Kaepernick a great deal. It's like, all right, well, you have an opportunity. You are in a position to where you, know, you can at least uh, make an offer and put something out there to see what his interest is. And again, I think we don't really know what Colin Kaepernick's demands would be from a salary standpoint. Uh, would he truly be willing to take a backup role? Who knows? But again, the Seahawks shouldn't decide for him, in my opinion. They should reach out and see where he's at and if he does want to play and, and make an offer. That starter versus backup discussion, Joe Fan expanding on that a little bit as well. With all of that and all that momentum, there should be more interest in Colin Kaepernick right now than, than there was a month ago. And uh, But ultimately, I mean, who knows if any team is really going to make that move. I just think you can't say no for cap right like i don't think the seahawks can hide behind the well you know he wants to be a star we, we you know we think he should be a starter and we can't offer him that so we're not going to go down that road it's like all right well that's, you can't you know how you conduct your business should be independent from what you think the other teams should do and so again i think the, the seahawks shouldn't be able to hide from that especially again given what pete carroll said in terms of of what you know colin kaepernick is owed in terms of leading this movement 
Would there be another good fit for Colin Kaepernick other than the Seahawks? I, I think culturally they should, uh, or they, they would be able to handle any more so than other teams. But, but again, I, the way I think the Seahawks should operate is it's independent of what the other teams are, right? If Colin Kaepernick gets three offers and, and one of them is going to give them an opportunity to start, then of course you take that one, right? But again, I don't think you can, the Seahawks should be in a position where they're saying no for Cap, right? If he says no and says, hey, I want an opportunity to start, I'm not going to come there and just be Russ's backup and be fine with that, then who knows, right? To me, the reality is is that you know, he's only 32, and that's pretty young in terms of quarterback years. And um, you know, if he's able to come in with fresh legs, he hasn't had the wear and tear of the last three seasons and is in good shape and wins the backup job and has a nice preseason and then goes through this year of being Russ's backup, then who knows what happens the following year. Joe Fan also having covered uh, the 49ers for a period of time, discussing how Shanahan was going to look for a new QB after 2016. I think there's also, there has to be a, a realization where, um, you know, being in San Francisco in 2016, Colin Kaepernick wasn't playing very good football. Now, he was in an awful situation. We've seen with guys like Nick Foles and Ryan Tannehill and so many quarterbacks where the situation is, so determining of how the you know the quarterback play is, and Chip Kelly in 2016, um, you know, basically was running an offense where uh, you'd have a couple of good drives, and then the defense would make an adjustment, and there was no counterpunch. So I don't think that's all on Colin Kaepernick, right? He didn't have a very good supporting cast, uh, and coaching staff put him in a great position to be successful. But the reality was, was that Kyle Shanahan was going to go find a new guy, anyways. Uh, we got to hear from Cliff Averill yesterday as well. He was on Get Up, um, I think as guest host. It was good to see Cliff up there. But he talked about the NFL owing Kaepernick an apology. I think it's, it's a step forward, right? But I also think this is a little bit more than just Kaepernick getting signed. I think he will get workouts. I think he de- he deserves to get those looks and get the calls from teams and hopefully possibly possibly get a, a chance to play on the team. But more so than anything, I think he deserves an apology for from the NFL and from ownership throughout the league of how they treated him about this situation. But again, it's a little bit deeper than Cap. It's about doing the right thing from the NFL. It's about uh, getting behind the real issues in America, the issues that a lot of your players face outside of the facility or the football field. Because at the end of the day, when you're out, you're, you don't have that uniform on, you don't have that helmet on, you're dealing, we're, we're all dealing with some of the different things that people are protesting about right now. So I think it's a little bit deeper than Cap, but I definitely just think he deserves the opportunity to be able to get back out there. Cliff also saying he, they had support from Seahawks ownership when the uh, protests happened, peaceful protests happened, and that the organization understood. The great thing about being here in Seattle, one of the few teams during the protest, uh, Coach Carroll, Paul Allen, both of those guys, they didn't push back when it came down to guys protesting. As you can see, a lot of us sat down during the pro, uh, to protest, and there wasn't any pushback. We had meetings in the locker room or in uh you know, team meetings where we bring different activists in so they can learn as well, right? Because it was more than football to those guys. And I think that was really, really cool to see. I mean, you listen to Coach Carroll, some of his messages, and he understood the message at that, right? I, I think that's the biggest piece. He never he never thought it was about the flag. He always knew and understood the message. And I think that's the point that, that we need to push is the message is about uh, uh, police brutality and equality, different things like that that, that guys are fighting for and I think our locker room, one of the few, we were able to capitalize off that as far as for being able to protest and being able to make sure we are heard. And they had no issues with that. 
The Major League Baseball Players Association, they've responded to Major League Baseball and their latest response and proposal is for a season of 89 games with a full prorated share of their salary and expanded playoffs, according to Jeff Passan's latest report up on ESPN right now. Now, it would bring both parties closer to a potential deal. I believe he called it the deal zone on the Sports Center last night uh, because it's 25 games fewer than the union's most recent proposal, the idea of 114 games at full prorated s- salaries. Uh, so they've come down from, from there, but still above where the owners were looking to play and also the owners asking for some sort of salary cut. Uh, Carl Ravitch, though, ESPN reporting yesterday that the proposal is a non-starter, though, said, quote, out of concern for the players' health, extending the regular season past 27 won't happen, according to Ravitch's source. MLB on Monday proposed a 76-game season that would cover up to 75% of players' prorated salaries. The newest MLB proposal would reportedly have the season start on July 10th and end on October 11th. It would also expand the postseason, something the owners have wanted to do, to 16 games, eight in each league uh, for 2020 and 2021. Here is, ESP, or here is Jeff Passan on SportsCenter last night discussing this topic and uh, the fact that players are standing tall and want their full prorated salaries. The more conversations I've had with players over the last week or so, the more I've come to understand that the full prorated salary is not the most important thing for them. It is more or less the only thing for them at this point. And I understand, listen, there are other issues. There's health and safety and, you know, they have expanded playoffs that they can give to Major League Baseball as a carrot. But in the end, the players say, no matter how long the season is, we want our full pro rata. If the sides are unable to agree on a deal, the league has the ability, believes it does, to implement a schedule of desired length. And we've heard the 48-game season thrown around, and players would be paid at their full pro-rated salary for that, but a much shorter game season. Ryan Roland-Smith, our own on yesterday on the possibility that they, we get that shortened season, and he said it's not good for anyone. It's just so bare minimum and just so, you know, like lackadaisical way of looking at this thing. It drives me nuts. If I'm a player, I'm like, are you kidding? You, you're just going to roll out for the next three months a 50-game season when I'm used to playing, playing 162? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be really upset about it. If I was a player, and talking to some of these guys, they, they don't even, you know, you talk to them about that, and they're like, you know, that's just not going to happen. They, they, I think it's not because they have inside information. I just don't think they can quite wrap their head around We'll discuss more later in the hour, but up next on the Blitz, uh, the Seahawks, should they pay Chris Carson after his deal is up? We've got a lot of different thoughts from across 710 and the different shows. I'll play some for you. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Wednesday, June 10th. Thanks for hanging out with me this morning. 
Yesterday, we heard from Adam Schefter that uh, Dalvin Cook was not going to attend any off-season workouts until uh, he had a contract that he liked. Here is Adam Schefter explaining yesterday. It's a tough spot for the Vikings and for Dalvin Cook because you can't make the argument that he's not worth some of the money he's asking, but the running back position typically has not been paid. The Vikings this offseason, though, did redo the contract of quarterback Kirk Cousins, giving him $30 million a year. I think Dalvin Cook would like to make that over the course of, say, three seasons. And so with one year left on his contract that's scheduled to pay him $1.3 million, he doesn't want to go into training camp or this season without a new deal. And he's vowing not to do that. He will not play until he has that, quote-unquote, reasonable deal. Shefty went on to discuss other running backs that have attempted and tried that tactic before and how that turned out. It also prompted a lot of conversation yesterday about the future of Chris Carson here in Seattle. One year left on his deal and coming off a season-ending injury last year, Jake Heaps of Tom, Jake, and Stacy discussing people think that they seem to think it's easy to find another Chris Carson, and he just wanted to dispel that rumor. Traditionally, running backs are not guys that you typically want to pay big money to because of health concerns and all of that. But I just want to tell you guys how special Chris Carson has been because I, I see this sentiment that, oh, we could just find the next Chris Carson. You can just find the next Marshawn Lynch. It's not that easy, right? Look at Rashad Penny. You draft him in the first round. Uh, they have high expectations for him, and he has injury concerns. You don't know uh, or he's had a major injury history here with the Seahawks so far in his career. Hasn't been able to live up to that first-round billing. But Chris Carson, back-to-back consecutive seasons, he's had over 1,000 yards in both seasons. His leaving targets has more than doubled. Uh, from 2018 to 2019. Uh, He's one of three running backs, okay, one of three running backs since 2018 who has forced over 100 missed tackles. And in that company is Nick Chubb, Chris Carson, and Derrick Henry. Tom Wassel saying, though, the injury history is just too much for him to surmount. I'll tell you what, I'm not investing that kind of money in Chris Carson for one reason. He's way too injury prone. Eight million, okay. If we want to talk in that range, I, I would be I would be willing to think about that. But he is he's had season ending injuries. Is it more than twice? He had it in twenty seventeen after four games, and then last year, obviously twice. at the end of the season, uh, as they entered the playoffs. Now they seem like freaky injuries. Like we're talking broken bones here, right? I don't know that he's injury prone in like the nagging way like oh maybe he's available this week maybe he isn't when he's healthy he's a go but his bones (laughs) seem to be a little too brittle at times so i don't know if for a guy who hasn't gotten that even his first big contract yet and he's already had two seasons with season ending injuries i'd be really afraid to invest big money even though his stats dictate that he's deserving of that So let's talk about that injury. Back in late February, we got an update from Pete Carroll on how Chris was recovering. Chris is doing really well. There's not a whole lot Chris can do, so so he hasn't done very many things wrong. So... uh it's it's, it's a injury that just it takes time and uh, it's it's not really it's serious because it's a hip but it's not serious and that we know what's going to happen it's not displaced or any of that kind of stuff we just need to wait it out and uh, which is really hard for Chris because he's a workout maniac and, and loves to be on you know in the weight room and all that 
he's doing the best he can, and he's done everything he can possibly do, and, and we're just hoping he doesn't overdo it, so we're trying to monitor that. But uh, we're counting on a full recovery. He should be ready to go. More recently in May, uh, Schottenheimer was on Chris Long's podcast and said he felt very confident in Carson's return. Bob Sutton, though, bringing this up on Bob David Moore yesterday, he said that beyond the injuries, Carson's fumbling last year was a concern. He's got to he's got to hang on to the ball. That was really problematic last year. And to the point where just as a fan watching, there were times where he'd just run into the middle of that pile. And I would I'd almost have a sense of apprehension or nervousness like, oh, man, is he? Does he have it? Does, do I see body scrambling like there's a loose ball and I can't see? It? I mean, I, I got conditioned to almost anticipate a fumble. And that was a big part of his story. And we know how much Pete, above most coaches, detests turning the ball over. You just can't have it. It's absolutely crushing to an offense. So that's that's a part of his game. As much as it being healthy is, is first and foremost, obviously, he's got to be there. He's got to hang on to the freaking ball, man. That was really, really rough for him last year. Joe Fan of NBC Sports joining uh, Tom Jake Stacy yesterday, and he talked about how it's hard to see the Seahawks uh, paying a bunch of money for Chris Carson. But Dave Wyman in the afternoon saying that he would try to re-sign Carson next year on a shorter deal, uh, just uh, be incentive heavy. No, I guess what I would do with Chris Carson is I would give him a chance to, with incentives to make a whole bunch of money. You know, and I'm not talking about 16 million or anything like that, but try to, you know, put him on a shorter deal where he has a chance by being, if he's available, if that guy is available, he is the best they have. Up next on the Blitz, we'll hear more from Dave on the Seahawks running group, uh, back group as a whole, saying they've made it really competitive and why that leaves them a little room to decide on Carson. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Wednesday, June 10th. We're hanging out this morning. Just before the break, we're discussing Chris Carson, the possibility of paying him after his deal is up in a year, coming off uh, a season-ending injury last year, but having... 2,000-yard-plus seasons over the past uh, two years. Dave Wyman uh, discussing the Seahawks running back group as a whole. They've made it really competitive. I said this yesterday to Clayton. I feel like they've made the one position other than quarterback that's probably most important to them on this team is running back, and they've made it really competitive. So I don't certainly don't see any need to do anything other than let him play out his fourth year and then try to figure it out. See how this year goes. I mean, if he gets hurt again, yeah, you got to go for sure. Look, this is uh, this is a guy. There's no way we're gonna just pay him a bunch of money. And if you want to do something, make it you know heavily laden with incentives of just being available. Because you know, I feel like if he's available, he's gonna get the numbers. You know, don't make it on yardage or anything like that. If he's available. Chris Carson is going to get his, and I, I just I love the way he runs. I think he's really important, you know. And if I could pick any of those guys right now, you know, obviously it would be Chris Carson. On Bob David Moore, the guys yesterday also discussing the Seahawks' offensive approach when it comes to being run first. As we talked about going into the break, the NFL feels like it's gotten pass happy in recent years, but. You look at, at percentage of passes to run ratio, and there are some teams in the bottom of the league in terms of passing the ball. 
that are pretty darn good. Now, Kansas City leads the league in, in passing. They're, they're plus 8% in passing. But you look at, at the very bottom of the league is Minnesota. They pass the ball the least. Baltimore, right, right in front of them at 31. So number 32, bottom of the league is Minnesota. Number 31 is Baltimore. Number 30 is Tennessee. You've got uh, the Raiders at 29, the San Francisco 49ers at 28. So you got a, you got a couple teams that were, were vying, were in the Super Bowl, vying for the Super Bowl. Seattle, by the way, is 25. So they're the only teams below Seattle in terms of uh, throwing the ball fewer times would be Washington, Indianapolis, San Francisco, Las Vegas, Tennessee, Baltimore, and Minnesota. So you see it's not just the Seahawks that have success running the ball, and while it may not be as entertaining or as electric as the cooking people want it to be, as Jim says, they're successful, and they're other, and they're not the only team that are doing it that way. Now, you look at the top passing team, Kansas City, number one, Atlanta's behind them, New Orleans, Miami's number four, Tampa Bay's number five, and we know Jameis Winston was throwing it to everybody out there on the field, not just his team. Uh <laughs> So, I mean, you know, there, there are teams that throw the ball a lot, that have success, but it feels like there are more bunched up at the very bottom that have been successful that don't pass the ball nearly as much. Yeah, it's. I remember uh, when New Orleans was really good. I think it was about around the time they won a Super Bowl, and they were like a few plays away from being 50-50, you know, as far as run and pass. And... Um, you know, and the the Niners this year, who you know for most of the year, I thought they were the best team in the league. They were forty nine fifty one, I believe, pass to run. So they ran it a little bit more. So yeah, I mean, it's just how you run the ball. I don't I don't think that that's ever going to go away, because you know, and you look at some of the 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 teams, the way they're running it. To me, I, I don't know about you guys. To me, a really well designed run play is so much more impressive. I guess, and effective to me because a lot of it has to do what, with what football is really all about. It's about winning a one-on-one battle. And so when you, when you see it executed that way, and the Ravens, I did a breakdown, and I mentioned this last week, but there, there was a play where I think they had three tight ends or they had an extra lineman in lined up on the end of the line of scrimmage, a tight end, a tight end in the backfield. They brought a tight end in motion to the play side, and then they pulled a guard. So what you end up doing is just overwhelming someone physically at the point of attack. And it's hard for defenses to adjust and get over and sort of, you know, get a man-for-man type of uh, situation on that side of the ball when they've got all of these things, you know, guards pulling, lead blocker, you know, big guys up front. So also, you know, I always go back to that third and eight call in the NFC Championship game that the Niners had where they just ran a simple trap. And you could tell that... You know, even the guy they were supposed to trap was running upfield so far, they didn't even have to block him because they just assumed it was going to be a pass. And it ended up being a Raheem Mostert touchdown. So, yeah, it's it's how you do it. So it's not necessarily like, you know, um, all of the innovation and all of this progressive play calling takes place in the passing game. It takes place in the running game as well. So, yeah, I, I was looking at the same thing. Ravens, Titans, Vikings, Niners. I mean, those those are the guys that, that were passing it the least. Now, obviously, I think Kansas City, did you say they had the highest blend? Was it 60-40, something like that? They're, they're plus 8%, so they've got the highest passing total. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, look, obviously that work, you've got an absolute, you know, generational talent in Patrick Mahomes. 
So, but you know, you have that with Russell too. But I just don't think it necessarily means throwing the ball more. It just means how you design your running plays, and that's one of the reasons why I think Mike Solari is such an important. Uh, character in this season coming up here because he's got a lot of offensive linemen that he's going to have to get coached up and get ready to play together but you know I think for the running backs too those running backs spend a lot of time with the offensive line coach so yeah I mean I, I, I have no problem with that whatsoever also yesterday on Bob, Dave, and more, the guys joined by the hyphen, Ryan Roland-Smith. Uh, and you should check out Ryan's podcast right now if you haven't given it a listen, but it's pretty incredible. And he talked about how he would feel right now if this, if he was still a player during the work stoppage. Also, it began with him being asked what was one young guy in the Mariners system that he was excited to watch this year. I was talking about on the pitching side, Justice Sheffield. I think I'll, I'll go on the hitting side here. I want to see what Kyle Lewis can do in 162 games. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But this year, 2020, that's what I was kind of, you said, going back to March. I wanted to see what Kyle Lewis, what kind of bats he put together. Because September was so impressive. But it was just a small sample size. I would love to see how he can sort of put together a full six-month season, how he can get through that hump that they all hit, like we saw Daniel Vogel back in the middle of the year, and he didn't really recover from it. I wanted to see if Kyle Lewis, what he was made of, how he get in those deep at bats, and figure out a way to keep putting on that exit below that you did in September. That was a guy I was really excited about seeing. Hey, Ryan, uh, just back to the negotiations for a moment. We spoke with Ryan Divish yesterday and talked about, you know, there is that, that element of this whole negotiation where if they can't come to an agreement, baseball can basically say, all right, we're calling it. It's going to be a 50-game season, 48-game season, whatever number they want, and the, and the players have to play, or they can choose to sit out and not get paid. But Ryan made the point that, yeah, that, that's likely to happen, but then next year you're looking at a work stoppage. There's going to be a lot of animosity, a lot of hard feelings about that. If you're playing this game, and I know you talk to some guys that are still in the game, how are they, how are they feeling about that potential move of baseball just saying, all right, well, we can't bridge the gap, so here's the schedule. Get ready. Yeah, I, look, I, I think it's 50 games. I mean, are we trying here? You know what I mean? That, that to me is just like, and, you know, the, the, obviously the proposal's coming from the owners. But that, to me, looks like, uh, you know what, we're losing money here. This is the best we can do here. Deal with it. You know, it it's just so bare minimum and just so, you know, like lackadaisical way of looking at this thing. It drives me nuts. If I'm a player, I'm like, are you kidding? You, you are just going to roll out for the next three months a 50-game season when I'm used to playing, playing 162? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be really upset about it if I was a player and, Talking to some of these guys, they, they don't even, you know, you talk to them about that and they're like, you know, that's just not going to happen. They, they, I think it's not because they have inside information. I just don't think they can quite wrap their head around <laughs> baseball. Oh, hey, guys, I'll give you 50 games. That's all you get. Um, hang with them and we'll see you next year. That's just, that's just not a good plan for anyone. Players, owners, anyone. It's just, and look, I, I haven't looked into the books. I don't, they, they're talking about $600 something thousand dollars they're losing for a game. You're going to lose a lot more than that when it comes to your relationship with the players' union, your fans, and everyone else come 2021. Yeah, and potential revenue, not just 21, but moving ahead in the next couple of years. Uh, more on that from Jeff Passan on the latest Players Association proposal. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From 
the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! in case you've been anxiously awaiting to hear where UFC 251 would take place and where exactly Fight Island was, which sounded like, I don't know, a mythical place where uh, Jason Statham or maybe Vin Diesel might create a movie. Uh, Dana White actually revealing that Fight Island is real and revealing the location yesterday. So everybody has been dying to find out where Fight Island is. Fight Island is on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. And, you know, just like I said about Florida, when we went to Florida, how the commission and the government worked with us there to pull off this fight, same thing with Abu Dhabi. These guys have been amazing partners in everything that we've ever done with them. So we're going UFC 251, Saturday, July 11th in Abu Dhabi. But seriously, Fight Island starring Jason Statham or The Rock or Vin Diesel or something, that could happen. I could see that coming to theaters. After 10 years, a decade, man, former USC Trojans running back Reggie Bush's disassociation from the university uh, that he attended is expected to come to an end. The timing is a result of an NCAA Committee on Infractions rule adopted in 2017 that limits any mandated disassociation between an individual and a school for 10 years. Bush's disassociation, which came as part of sanctions that included a two-year postseason ban, 14 vacated victories, including the 2004 BCS National Championship and the loss of 30 scholarships, began on June 10, 2010. Once the 10-year period is over, uh, the NCAA will no longer quote, monitor or enforce the disassociation and will give schools the freedom to decide how to proceed, whether that's to extend the disassociation or end it. Uh, Yeah, the sanctions come in the wake of a four-year extra benefits investigation that determined that Bush and family members, while he was a student athlete, it's a cash, travel expenses, and a home in the San Diego area where Bush's parents lived rent-free for more than a year and with which they were provided $10,000 to furnish and Bush had to return his Heisman Trophy. Uh, During the past 10 years, Bush has not been allowed on USB's campus or at least welcome on it and it's not been involved with the Trojans program in any capacity. He recently told or I think spoke with uh, The Athletic recently and said, it was a horrible feeling, one of the worst feelings in the world. It felt like I died when I had to hear that there weren't going to be scholarships for kids because of me or because of something connected to me. I'm still not over that. It's just something you learn to live with. Uh, and man, speaking of the NCAA, which uh, can't keep itself out of the headlines and usually for the wrong things. Yesterday, Duke Athletic Director Kevin White said he is concerned about potential abuse of name, image and likeness legislation and unfair recruiting advantages that might result. His comments, which came on Twitter on Tuesday, were started in the support of North Carolina Athletic Director Bubba Cunningham. And he said last week that NAL legislation would compel collegiate athletics to, quote, abandon a model that's flourished. Yeah, flourished for you, not for student-athletes. 
White said, quote, along with my colleague and friend Bubba Cunningham of the University of North Carolina, I'm concerned about potential complications attendant upon the actual implications of NIL legislation. How will it impact recruiting? Will it create an open marketplace in which institutions solicit businesses or boosters to offer ever escalating endorsement deals to an all-star high school quarterback or point guard? End quote. And you're saying that doesn't happen right now, just to be clear? Uh, that, sta- that statement came out yesterday, and Jay Billis, uh, I thought, had some great thoughts on it. He, on, on both the athletic director's comments, what they were really saying. It's just the sort of the, the, the policy and the statement that somehow we're worried about an unfair recruiting advantage, which, which really means that the players are incredibly valuable. And we're worried that the more valuable players are going to get more money than the less valuable players. And the, which is what free market economics does. But we're not worried about it with regard to scholarships and with, with regard to how money is allocated to, to college sports. Because as you guys know, and we all know, money is allocated toward football and basketball first at, at a rate that does not compare to the other sports. Uh, athletes in certain sports get way more than athletes in others. Football and basketball players get scholarships. Uh, most of the Olympic sports that everybody seems so concerned about, uh, they're paying their own way. Most of them do not get scholarships at all, and their teams are subject to scholarship limits for what they call competitive balance reasons, but it's really economic reasons. So these, these are all a bunch of phony issues that are being brought up because because the administrators and, and the folks in Indianapolis do not want this to happen because they think this is our money. And, and if people, if businesses and corporations are allowed to make deals with players, that may, that may take the money that's coming to us and redirect it to the players. And we can't have no. that. That's our money. And, and that's really what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, too, because White's comments suggest that they are afraid of unfair advantages after the NCAA Board of Governors announced its support of new name, image, and likeness rules in April. But both North Carolina and Duke have been working on ways to potentially capitalize on NIL rules when it comes to recruiting. They've hired independent firms and released case studies last month in conjunction with the school that uh, assign values essentially to some of the basketball players, like uh, like their what they could have made on their Twitter, on their media social media accounts last season, if name, image, and likeness rules would have allowed them to. So basically, saying uh, if you come play with us, you can earn X amount of money on your Twitter, on your social media, and so they're going out and finding out ways that they could potentially capitalize on this in recruiting, and yet are saying that they are worried about this being used in recruiting. So once again, a bit hypocritical there. How about the NCAA and them wanting antitrust and antitrust exemption? So the athlete's compensation has to be limited uh, to expenses only. But, but remember, they're not asking Congress for an antitrust exemption to limit coaches' salaries or facility spending or media rights deals or anything like that. They're asking for one thing. Help us limit the athletes so we can do what we want in every other area. And I find that unpalatable to the point of of repugnance. Yeah. Houston Rockets guard Russell Westbrook uh, announced he's going to be producing a documentary documentary series about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, Westbrook will be the executive producer for the series, which is titled Terror in Tulsa, The Rise and Fall of Black Wall Street. Westbrook will be collaborating with documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson. 
And he played 11 years with the Oklahoma City Thunder before being traded to the Rockets in July 2019. He said on Twitter yesterday that living in Oklahoma, quote, opened my eyes to the rich and sordid history of the state. When I learned about the heartbreaking events that happened in Tulsa nearly 100 years ago, I knew this was a story I wanted to tell. Well, NBA uh, is on its way back. That is the good news about it. Uh, And Brian Windhorst, though, uh, already commenting and forecasting on the NBA's potential plans for next season. What happens next season is a completely different negotiation. And this is something that is complicated, I understand. But after they get this restart going, they then have to swing talks to the union about what's going to happen next season, whether next season is going to be 82 games, whether it's going to start December 1st, how they're going to work out the money, how they're going to deal with less fans in the stands. And they have a September deadline on whether they want to void the entire collective bargaining agreement and potentially start a lockout. Yeah, still many things to think about. Roger Federer will be out of competitive tennis until the start of 2021 uh, because of a setback in his recovery from surgery on his right knee. The 20-time Grand Slam champion on Wednesday posted a statement uh, on social media to confirm he'll be out of action for the rest of 2020. The 38-year-old underwent arthroscopic knee surgery back in February that would have forced him to miss the clay court season, including the French Open. Had the turn not been suspended back in March and the, uh, amid the coronavirus pandemic, the French Open, originally scheduled for May, was postponed to September and Wimbledon was canceled for the first time since World War II. But uh, wishing Federer a recovery on his knee and seeing him back out there as soon as, of course, sports are able to get back and underway. Yesterday, uh, Joe Fan of NBC Sports joined 710 to discuss his recent article, which uh, had a lot of passionate people on both sides about why he believes this could be a good time for the Seahawks to sign Colin Kaepernick. I think in general, the Seahawks have a culture to where they can handle and have handled you know, if you want to call it a distraction or something in general who is there who's going to command more media attention than, than strictly what they were uh, are able to do on the football field. And I think we all know that Colin Kaepernick would, would bring such attention. Uh, but I think on top of that, I think that given the events of the last week where uh, Roger Goodell basically posts a video admitting guilt in that not listening to the players sooner, which, you know, I think to me is fair to assume that um, admitting wrongdoing and, and basically Colin Kaepernick being blacklisted for the, from the NFL for three years. You can listen to Joe's full interview on 710sports.com. Uh, I highly recommend it. Also yesterday, uh, Ryan Clark, ESPN NFL an- analyst, talked about Roger Goodell's statement uh, of support for the players and how they will he'll have to back it up this season. The NFL was a little late and more reactive, but it's better than not acting at all, Trey. And I think we've seen the NFL do that before, not make statements, not stand behind players who are peacefully protesting. And so this is a step forward. I thought that it was good that the NFL came out and said exactly what the players wanted. I even thought it was even more impressive that the players and Michael Thomas specifically took it up on himself to get that together, to call different guys and make sure that was something that was not only seen by the NFL, but seen by the world, which pressured Roger Goodell and the NFL to make a statement. I also think it was good that Roger Goodell added certain things, like I protest with you. Uh, He also said that without black players, they don't have a league. I mean, the one thing that was missing from everything that Roger Goodell said, and I know 
people are going to roll their eyes and, and say, oh, my goodness, they still want more. But the one thing that was missing was Colin Kaepernick was right. Ryan Clark also went on, uh, was on with Golik and Wingo. Sorry, I messed that up this morning, but talked about how uh, the owners, eventually, they are going to have to pick a side in this and make their support for players vocal and known. It's not enough, he said, to not be racist, but you have to be anti-racist during this time. So uh, he expects or hopes that owners will follow suit with that as well. Uh, We heard from... The Baseball Players Association yesterday, continuing in the negotiation saga, they've made a proposal to MLB for a season of 89 games with a full prorated share of salary and expanded playoffs, according to Jeff Passan's new report. It would bring both sides a little bit closer, I guess, to a potential deal. He called it the deal zone uh, because it is 25 games fewer than the union's most recent proposal of 114 games. But an MLB source telling Carl Ravitch that the proposal is a non-starter. So we've got... Two different takes on this. Uh, MLB on Monday proposed a 76-game season that would cover up to 75% of players' prorated salaries. The newest uh, MLBPA proposal, though, they're sticking with that 100% and uh, aren't budging on that, according to Passan. The more conversations I've had with players over the last week or so, the more I've come to understand that the full prorated salary is not the most important thing for them. It is more or less the only thing for them at this point. And I understand, listen, there are other issues. There's health and safety and, you know, they have expanded playoffs that they can give to Major League Baseball as a carrot. But in the end, the players say no matter how long the season is, we want our full pro rata. If they can't come to an agreement, of course, MLB believes that it can implement a schedule of its desired length in the 48-game seasons, what we've heard thrown around, but passing on potential lengths for this season. 89's just not happening because MLB wants to end the season by September 27th so that they can play the playoffs by the end of October. I think if there is a compromise to be made here, it's going to be somewhere in the 70 to 75 game range. Otherwise, we're looking at a 48 game season that's imposed by MLB. And I think over the next few days, we're going to have a much better sense of whether that's going to happen or the longer season. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at 6 Hour Baseball. I miss you. It is the MLB draft later today. So if you're interested in watching that, the first round starts at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on ESPN and ESPN2 airing the next four rounds starting at 5 p.m. Also, some articles up at 710 Sports for you on potential picks for the Mariners, all available for you uh, on our website. That's a wrap for the hot list. Uh, Danny and Gallant coming your way in mere seconds. Everybody take care of yourself.